The origins of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory are far more messed up than you would ever guess. The book went through so many changes by the time it was published that it was unrecognizable from Roald Dahl's original manuscript. And then it was changed some more. Mark my words, by the end of this episode, you are never going to see the movies, book, or Oompa Loompas the same way. I would bet Bonesworth's hat on it. If you haven't heard the news or seen the trailers, the most famous candy maker in the world, Willy Wonka, is getting a prequel movie that explains how he became the cream of the crop who rose to the top and never ate a pig because a pig is a cop. Timothée Chalamet will be the third man to play the chocolatier on the big screen and has a big hat to fill with his predecessors being the legendary Gene Wilder and international icon Johnny Depp. And while I'm always skeptical of pointless prequels that tell a story not a single person on the entire planet asked for, I've got to admit that the way Wonk is presented in the trailers may actually be more accurate to the book than either of the previous iterations. That's why today we are going to dissect both films and see how they measure up to the original story. But wait, because it gets better. And worse. Because we are also going to take a look at the truly bizarre and dare I say, awful first draft of the story that we can only thank the gods Dahl had the good sense to revise and all the ways that his publishing company almost ruined his books with revisions of their own. Part 1. Book versus Movies Now before you can fully appreciate the sheer horror of Roald Dahl's first draft of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, we need to unpack the final version that we've all come to know and love, and measure it up against the two adaptations, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971 and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from 2005. The film's different titles are the result of marketing concerns and the film's focuses. Despite being adaptations of the same story, they are very different movies, largely as a result of the very different directors. The book by Roald Dahl is indeed titled Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but the 1971 film put Willy Wonka in the title because once he enters, the plot revolves entirely around his character. Also, the marketers were concerned that people who shortened the title when talking about it would simply call it Charlie, and that was too vague for their liking. Meanwhile, there could be no confusion what Willy Wonka was referring to. Mel Stewart led the charge of the 1971 film, and prior to its creation, he had almost exclusively worked on documentaries. As a result, he approached it as such, and I would say the first act in particular feels more like a documentary than a family fantasy musical. Nevertheless, it is a hilarious film with a beautiful message, iconic soundtrack, except for that one song, and Gene Wilder absolutely crushes it as Wonka. You should open your mouth a little wider when you speak. Tim Burton was responsible for the 2005 adaptation, which despite the mixed reviews, is far more accurate to the book and more appreciated by Dahl's estate than the 1971 version. Personally, I think this one's a nightmare and Johnny Depp's performance is almost entirely to blame. But I do want to give Burton credit for the respect that he showed the source material. I may not be a fan of his casting choices, art style, or sense of humor, but his movie is the one I'd recommend to anyone who's looking for a one-to-one -one recreation of the book. With this in mind, you're going to hear me drawing comparisons to the 1971 adaptation with Gene Wilder a little more. And it's not because that's the version I personally like best. Even if I were only focusing on Burton's adaptation, there just wouldn't be many differences to point out until the very end. Also, Burton's movie was produced by Warner Brothers, and they copyright strike me anytime I use more than a few seconds of sound from any one of their movies. 
It happened with Iron Giant, for example. So we're just gonna avoid using that whenever possible and rely on the Gene Wilder version. All right, I think that's enough pontificating. It's time to comb your hair, brush your teeth, and get that mud off your pants because we are about to dive into the very messed up origins of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The story opens by introducing us to the Bucket family. Grandpa Joe and Grandma Josephine are the parents of Mr. Bucket, while Grandpa George and Grandma Georgina are Mrs. Bucket's parents. Mr. and Mrs. Bucket are the parents of Charlie Bucket, a skinny little lad with a big heart, and they all live together in a small shack on the edge of a great town. The Bucket family is about as poor as you can get. Like Charlie's parents were this close to pulling a Hansel and Gretel and abandoning him in the woods. They eat the same meals every single day, bread and cabbage soup, and all four grandparents sleep in the same bed while Charlie and his parents sleep on mattresses on the floor. So far, both movies follow this portrayal of their poverty perfectly, from the diet to the sleeping conditions. A small difference I noticed is that the grandparents in the book have their own bedroom instead of sleeping in the main room but I think the filmmaker's decision to make nearly the entire Bucket household fit in a single frame is a great example of visual storytelling. One pretty major difference in the adaptations is the character of Mr. Bucket. As you've already heard, in the book, he's alive and well and even has a job putting the lids on toothpaste tubes. This detail was included in Burton's adaptation, but left out of Stewart's version because Wonka was meant to be a replacement father figure. This is actually what the studio wanted Burton to do as well, but he refused because his version of Wonka had daddy issues of his own but more on that later. Now, one of the things that makes Charlie's destitution not just miserable, but straight up cruel is that his all-time favorite food is chocolate. And in his town is the largest chocolate factory in the entire world, owned and operated by William Wonka. Charlie had to pass by the factory twice a day, once when he walked to school and once when he walked home. And he would always stick his nose up in the air to inhale its delicious scent. I do the same thing whenever I pass by my local dispensary. This detail is also shown in both films, though I prefer the Stewart version because it also includes my favorite character, the man with the cart full of knives. Who is this man? What does he want? Why does he have so many knives? And what's with doll adaptations featuring strange old men who speak all ominously to the protagonist? James and the Giant Peach had the same thing. Well, the conversation this Charlie has with Knife Man is had with his grandpa in the book and Burton version, and we learn a little of Wonka's backstory. Specifically, that his factory used to employ everyone in town, but was infiltrated by spies from rival candy makers, and when they stole his one-of-a-kind candy creations, he laid off his entire staff, closed his factory, and then reopened it with a brand new mystery crew. It's also during this conversation that we learn about the Indian prince Pondicherry, who's also featured in Burton's version. The prince hired Wonka to construct an entire palace out of chocolate, only for it to melt under the sun's blazing heat. When Grandpa finishes educating Charlie on the world's greatest inventor, Mr. Bucket rushes into the room with an announcement. He's going to put Charlie up for adoption because he's sick of him not carrying his weight around the house. Just kidding. I had to make sure you were paying attention. You don't know what we're talking about. 
dragonflies? Charlie's dad rushes in with the newspaper and shares that Wonka is giving away five golden tickets at random and the winners will get a tour of his factory. In Burton's version, Charlie learns this from an ad on a telephone pole and in Stewart's, a kid named Winkleman shares the announcement with Charlie's class after hearing it on the radio. He sent him five golden tickets and the people who find them will win the big prize. Where's he hidden the tickets? Inside five Wonka bars. You gotta buy Wonka bars to find them. Class three dismissed. As word of Wonka's contest spreads, the world collects loses its mind as everyone and their mother starts looking for tickets. Both films portray the madness pretty well, but I love the humor of the 1971 version. Miss Curtis, did you hear me? It's your husband's life or your case of Wonka bars. How long will it give me to think it over? Fun fact, this scene with the scientist actually appears in the book. It says, I won't tell, that would be cheating. Only, instead of the computer shaming the scientist for cheating, it actually malfunctions while scanning the room for gold and rips out the golden tooth of a duchess. Both movies also introduce us to the winners in the exact same order as the book. There's fat boy Augustus Gloop, spoiled brat Veruca Salt, hyper-competitive gum chewer Violet Beauregard, and screen-addicted Mike TV. And I think this is a good time to mention that while the 2005 film is an adaptation of the book and not a remake of the original movie, the first movie did introduce certain character traits that are utilized in the second. What I'm mostly referring to is where in the world the children come from, because when Dahl wrote the book, he kept it setting vague, as he often does. We have no idea what country Charlie lives in or where the factory is located, and this holds true for the movies as well. But in the book, even the other winners' homelands remain a mystery. That means Augustus Gloop is never described as German. And fun fact, according to this website, the surname Gloop is most commonly found in Afghanistan. The decision to make him German for the 1971 movie may be because Germany is the world's leading exporter of chocolate. But I know for a fact that the actor who played him was also German and barely spoke any English, so maybe that had some influence over it too. Either way, the character was apparently iconic enough for Burton to leave him unchanged for his film. Now, as those four winners are introduced, Charlie keeps his hopes high that he might find the fifth and final golden ticket. Meanwhile, his family falls on even harder times. The toothpaste factory Mr. Bucket worked at went broke and had to close down, and he got a new job shoveling snow for pennies, which wasn't nearly enough. In the Burton film, he loses his job as well, but this time, it was because the recent rise in chocolate sales led to a rise in toothpaste sales, and the factory could suddenly afford to invest in automation. All too relatable in these modern times. But chapter 11 is called The Miracle and it's for good reason. On Charlie's walk home from school, he finds a dollar bill buried in the snow and uses it to buy some Wonka bars because he desperately needed the calories. And wouldn't you know it, the second bar he buys contains the final golden ticket. With his belly full of chocolate and veins pumping with adrenaline, the skinny skeleton boy runs home to his family to share the good news. Now in the Wilder film, Charlie is stopped in his tracks by Slugworth, who offers him a bribe of $10,000 dues to smuggle him an everlasting gobstopper. And those who've seen the movie know this is all part of Wonka's test to see which of his winners is honorable enough to take over his factory. The gobstoppers are featured in the book as well, but there's no honesty test. They're just briefly mentioned when the guests go to the inventing room but more on that later. When Charlie gets home and shares the good news about his lucky find, his family is stunned with amazement. Then, for the first time in 20 years, 
Grandpa Joe leaps out of bed, does a little dance, and celebrates with his grandson. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the reputation that Grandpa Joe has developed in recent decades. It seems like since people first started discussing the 1971 film on the internet that most are in agreement that Grandpa Joe is a scumbag. He spent two decades not working and being waited on hand and foot because of his physical limitations when it turns out he was fully capable of jumping around and performing elaborate dances as soon as there's a chance for him to do something fun. I totally agree that this is not a good look for Grandpa Joe and I do not have a defense for the man either. But I do think the book does a better job of portraying his recovery as a miracle and not something that could have happened whenever he wanted. Also, it's established earlier in the book that Joe and Charlie have a special friendship and that whenever Charlie entered the room, Joe's face would light up and he'd suddenly start acting youthful again. So I interpret his sudden return to full HP to be a result of his excitement that his best friend and grandson has finally won something for the first time in his life as opposed to seeing this as an opportunity for himself to go on an all-expenses-paid experience. I'm happy to say that Charlie's lucky streak is only just beginning, but before we move on to the big day of the factory tour, I want to let you know that if you're looking for some adventure in your life, I've got the answer for you. You can join me on a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Greece. Thanks to our partners at Trova Trip, me, Lauren, and 24 of you will spend a week exploring Athens, tasting authentic Nemean wine, touring ancient sites like the Theater of Epidaurus, sea kayaking, and so much more, all with our own personal tour guide. The trip is scheduled for September 7th to September 13th, 2024, will cost $3,800, and that price includes all of your hotel stays and every activity scheduled for that week. For those who want to learn more, I recommend you check out the trip page or watch my video where I answer some of the most commonly asked questions. If you are interested in joining us though, I'd recommend you reserve your spot ASAP because there's only 16 spots left and they're filling up quick. I hope to see you there, mere mortals. When the big day of the tour arrives, the scene is absolute chaos and crowds were going wild to the point where policemen had to form a barrier around the winners who each had their mothers and fathers with them, besides Charlie, who only had Grandpa Joe. You'll notice right away this is different than the films where only one parent was allowed, but this was a sensible change to make because the parents play simple roles that were easily condensed into one character, and this way, less actors had to be managed on set. We're told that Wonka is standing just inside the great big gates of the factory, and Dahl describes him as wearing a black top hat, a tailcoat of plum-colored velvet, bottle green trousers, pearly gray gloves, and a gold-topped walking cane. The illustrations also reveal that Wonka has facial hair. Now, it's obvious at a glance that Gene Wilder's fit is much closer to the book than Depp's, but I think that putting Wonka in a purple coat would have led to even more confusion about whether this movie was adapting the book or remaking the first movie so it was probably the smart choice. I am not gonna excuse his haircut though. It might actually be the worst thing I've ever seen. Back to the book, Wonka gives a warm welcome to every one of his winners and ushers them into the factory. There's no iconic contract scene like in the 1971 film though. Instead, he leads them through a maze of corridors to the heart of the factory, which apparently is underground because there wouldn't be enough room for him to build on the surface. Another detail invented for the 1971 film was the hallway illusion, where it looks like there's a long hallway, but in reality, it just gets smaller. This also shows up in the 2005 adaptation 
presentation, but the way they shoot it just kills the illusion. So instead, the whole joke is just that the door is really small, except that it's not. Now the guests' minds are blown to bits when they enter the chocolate room, which is described as a lovely valley with green meadows on either side with a great big chocolate river. We're also told there are transparent silver pipes extending from the ceiling to the river, and Wonka informs his guests that this is the only factory in the world that mixes its chocolate by waterfall. I think the Wilder movie does a much better job at conveying the guests' amazement at this awe-inspiring room. Don't get me wrong, Burton's version is more visually impressive with its bright colors and chocolate river that doesn't look like my toilet bowl after a night of eating McDonald's, but the added exploration we get to see while Wilder sings Pure Imagination goes a long way in letting the incredulity sink in. It's so amazing that even the bratty kids stop being brats for a little while and the parents revert to a state of childlike wonder. Meanwhile, Burton just uses this time to show us that even staring into the eyes of a miracle can't stop his shitty characters from being shitty. Why not start a new piece? Because then I wouldn't be a champion. I'd be a loser like you. I will give Burton props for sticking with practical effects here though. It would have been really easy for him to make the entire room CGI and that would have just ruined it. Well, as incredible as the chocolate room is, it doesn't take long for Wonka's guests to notice his peculiar helpers, the Oompa Loompas. And it's at this point in the episode that things are about to take a dark turn. Chances are, when I say Oompa Loompa, you either visualize a little orange man with green hair and white overalls, or actor Deep Roy in a red jumpsuit, depending on which of the films you grew up on. Well, neither of those are even close to how they're described in the book. Not in the original version, nor in the revised edition that Roald Dahl himself edited. You see, the original Oompa Loompas, I'm talking from the OG 1964 publication, were two-foot-tall African people who Charlie mistakes as being made from chocolate. I wish I was kidding. Wonka says there are more than 3,000 Oompa Loompas living in his factory, that he smuggled their whole tribe over from Africa himself, and they still wear their jungle clothes. The men sport deerskins, women wear leaves, and the children run around totally naked. He found them in the deepest part of the African jungle, where no white man had ever been before, and they love cocoa beans so much that they were all willing to move into his factory and work there in exchange for cocoa beans as their only form of payment. Seems a little exploitative, but I think that Dahl realized that, because he made it clear that the Oompa Loompa chief emphatically agreed to these terms. He wasn't coerced in any way. But wait, because if you weren't uncomfortable already, you're about to be. Wonka also adds that he smuggled the dark-skinned Oompa Loompas here in packing cases with holes in them, which almost sounds like suitcases, but the accompanying illustration shows them in shipping crates, like the big wooden boxes you always see in cartoons, but never in real life. Dahl went on to redesign the Oompa Loompas after the 1971 movie went into production. There were concerns from the movie makers and the NAACP that portraying these characters on screen would draw unwanted comparisons to slavery. And by this point, the book had already been drawing criticism and requests to be edited. So, after a lot of public pressure, Dahl's publishers strongly advised him to change their look and he obliged. Curiously though, his reimagining of Oompa Loompas is still a far cry from how they're shown in the movie. They do keep some details the same, like now the helpers are from Loompa Land instead of Africa, and Wonka is portrayed as their savior from dangerous beasts like Hornswogglers, Snozwangers, and Wicked Wang Doodles. Away from all the Wang Doodles and Hornswogglers and Snozwangers and rotten, vermicious knids. Snozwangers? Vermicious knids? What kind of rubbish is that? 
I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. But in terms of their physical appearance, the Oompa Loompas were changed to have pearly white teeth, rosy white skin, and sport long golden brown hair. The one detail that remained from the previous iteration is they opted for the usual jungle attire of deer skins and leaves. I have no idea where their design for the Wilder adaptation came from. I know they're supposed to be fantasy creatures mixed with factory workers, so an unusual appearance along with little overalls makes sense, but the bright orange skin and green hair? Haven't a clue. It was a good call though, because from the first moment you see them, you never forget them. When you think about it though, Burton's version resembles Dahl's original vision a lot more, despite being made more recently during what you would think is an even more politically correct time. For starters, we're shown a flashback scene where Wonka is deep in the jungle wilderness when he finds the Oompa Loompas. And granted, he does explain he was in Loompa Land, which Dahl also described as covered in a thick jungle, but there's no denying what this imagery was inspired by. Not to mention, the actor Burton chose for the Oompa Loompa role, Deep Roy, is actually African. He was born in Nairobi, Kenya. So here we have an African man playing a character that was originally African, but then had to be changed because that was deemed offensive. Yet, no one's offended by this. Now, just to be clear, I am not arguing for the cancellation of Tim Burton or anyone involved in this movie. I'm also hoping that me speaking on this doesn't get me canceled. I simply find it to be an interesting situation. We're going to talk more about Oompa Loompas in the censorship portion of this video, but for now, let's get back to the story. So after Wonka educates his guests on some Oompa Loompa history, he encourages them to explore the chocolate room, just like in the movies. But of course, your boy Augustus Gloop has to push it. He lays on his big fat belly and slurps from the chocolate river like a dog drinking from his water bowl. And as if that wasn't disgusting enough, his mom shouts that he'll be giving his cold to millions across the country. As Wonka rushes over to Augustus, the fat slob falls into the river and Mrs. Gloop loses her mind, shouting, help, police, murder, at the top of her lungs. Don't just stand there, do something. Help. Police. Murder. Before long, though, Augustus is sucked up into one of the many pipes that extends down into the river and is sent to the fudge room. So Wonka summons one of his Oompa Loompas with a few snaps of his fingers and has the Gloop parents escorted out. Another interesting distinction between the book and films is the book Wonka summons his helpers by snapping, where Wilder's Wonka plays a charming little tune on a pipe. Take Mrs. Gloop straight to the fudge room, but look sharp. And Depp's Wonka does this. <laughs> now, if you were wondering about the Oompa Loompa songs, I'm happy to report they do sing in the book as well. The songs are very different than what we see in the Wilder film, so no Oompa Loompa doopity dumps, but Burton's version actually used the original lyrics that were written by Roald Dahl with Danny Elfman composing them in different genres. Apparently Dahl pictured the Oompa Loompa's musical numbers as mirroring the role of the chorus in Greek plays, where they speak directly to the audience and barely interact with the story's main characters at all. The main purpose they served was to underscore the moral themes, actions, character development, and messages of a story to the audience. And I would argue that while the lyrics were changed for the Wilder film, they still succeeded in this function. 
And now we arrive at the infamous tunnel scene where Wonka welcomes his guests onto his boat and sails along the Chocolate River. This might be the biggest departure the Wilder film takes from the source material. Wonka does still sing a song about there being no earthly way of knowing which direction they are going and that there's no knowing where they're rowing or which way the river's flowing, but it's nowhere near as intense as the performance Wilder gives. Also, there's no nightmare-inducing visuals of centipedes crawling on faces and chickens having their heads cut off. The Burton film's boat ride is actually more accurate. It leaves out the song because it'd be impossible for Depp to match Wilder's energy here and it'd be sad to even see him try, but in the book, the boat is made from a giant hollowed out piece of pink candy that resembles a Viking ship and is rowed by dozens of Oompa Loompas. When the boat ride is over, the tour arrives at the inventing room where they learn about everlasting gobstoppers. As I mentioned before, there isn't nearly as much emphasis placed on the gobstoppers here as in the film. But Wonka does mention that his rivals Fickle Gruber, Prodnose, and Slugworth would give their front teeth to be inside the inventing room for just three minutes, so maybe that's where the idea for the movie came from. Burton's film shows off their version of the Gobstopper and gives special attention to Hair Toffee, which is also from the book and causes the eater's hair to grow out to crazy lengths. Next, we get to the Great Gum Machine, and you already know where this is going. Wonka shares that he's invented a new kind of gum that simulates the taste and feeling of an entire day's worth of food. Naturally, Violet, the great gum chewer, helps herself to a piece despite Wonka pleading with her not to, and as soon as the taste of dessert hits her tongue, Violet starts turning violet. Within moments, her body swells up into a big round ball, and she soon grows so large that the Oompa Loompas have to roll her to the juicing room for an emergency squeeze. Both films follow the book pretty accurately here, but of course Burton had to push it to the extreme and make Violet grow two stories tall. Two naughty, nasty little children gone. Three good, sweet little children left. Now, before we continue our tour of Wonka's factory, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Squarespace. I'll tell you the same thing I told Wonka. If you're looking to get your business off the ground, put your homemade products on the market, or simply share your art or passion project with the world, Squarespace has all the answers you're looking for. I love working with Squarespace because they do DIY website creation better than anybody else out there. Between their massive selection of website templates that can be optimized for any purpose to their intuitive interface, that lets you drag and drop design elements wherever you'd like without any coding experience. They make designing a beautiful and effective website so simple. You never have to download, patch, or install any updates, and you can sell virtually anything you'd like, from bars of chocolate to homemade goods and even digital products. Not to mention, they also offer marketing tools and analytics so you can gauge how successful your website is and an award-winning customer service team that's available 24-7 should you run into any problems. But the best part is, if you go to squarespace.com slash johnsolo, you can start a completely free trial at no financial risk. So not only do you save money during the setup process, but then when you decide you love it and can't live without it, you can use code johnsolo for 10% off your first purchase. As the tour continues, Wonka and the group walk along the corridor and pass by a ton of sweets that are referenced in the movie, like butterscotch and butter gin and lickable wallpaper complete with snozberries that tastes like snozberries. The snozberries taste like snozberries. Snozberries? Who ever heard of a snozberry? We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. 
The most notable, though, has to be the fizzy lifting drinks, which fill your stomach with gas and lift you off the ground. Another major difference between the book and the Wilder movie is that Charlie and Grandpa don't sneak off to sample some and almost get chopped to bits by a fan as a result. But Wonka does share that the Oompa Loompas have tried some, and one that was too polite to burp his way down floated into the sky and has never been seen again. Wonka also shows off his square candies that look round. You heard that right, square candies that look round. How is that possible, you ask? It's actually pretty simple. The candies are shaped like squares, but they have eyes, giving them the ability to look round. Coming up next is the scene that the 1971 film took in a completely different direction, while Burton followed it almost exactly. The Nut Room. The Nut Room is where Wonka harvests walnuts using the talents of dozens of trained squirrels. He uses squirrels because they're the only beings capable of removing the entire nut from its shell without breaking it. I will say that Burton's commitment to bringing this scene to the big screen is admirable, because he didn't just take the easy route and CGI the entire thing. He actually had 40 squirrels trained over the course of five months to sit on a stool, deshell the walnuts, and toss them in a little chute. Of course, he did end up using CGI to boost their numbers, but all of the close-up shots are real. What I've gotta put Burton on blast for, though, is what happens in this scene. Don't get me wrong, it follows the book almost exactly, but you'll see what I mean. When Veruca Salt, the spoiled little brat whose parents give her everything she's ever wanted and all the things she's never wanted, decides that she wants a trained squirrel as a pet, Wonka shuts her down, so she decides to grab one herself. Naturally, the squirrels don't appreciate her encroaching on their territory or her grabby little hands, so they gang up on her and test to see if she's a bad nut. When their suspicions are confirmed, they use their super squirrel strength to pick her up and toss her into the garbage chute. My problem with how Burton set up this scene is that the only thing stopping her dad from saving her is a little gate that looks like it's maybe three and a half feet high at most. Wonka pretends that he can't find the key to unlock it, so Mr. Salt just sits there watching his daughter get assaulted by rodents instead of just stepping over the gate. This dude loves his daughter enough to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to find a golden ticket and even risk falling into the trash chute once she's already gone but can't climb over the gate? I'm not buying it. Now, if you haven't seen the Burton movie or read the book, then everything that I just described has probably been a surprise to you because in the Wilder movie, there is no nut room. Instead, we get some giant geese that lay golden eggs. Now, this was probably because of CGI limitations, but I also suspect that not having the time or money to spend five months paying for squirrel trainers also played a factor. The end result of this scene is the same though. When Veruca can't get what she wants, she throws a tantrum, and when she makes the mistake of stepping on the egg scale, it says she's a bad egg, and down the chute she goes. Veruca, sweetheart, daddy's coming! There's gonna be a lot of garbage today. The candy man can, cause he mixes it with love, and makes the world taste good. Now, as we get into the book's third act, all three versions of the story that we're talking about start to diverge into their own direction, so you're gonna wanna pay close attention. With only two of the five ticket winners remaining, Wonka decides it's the perfect time to show off his great glass elevator, which can go in any direction you can think of and can access every single room in the factory. Then, just like in the Burton film, the group goes on a tour where they witness some truly amazing sights, like a mountain made entirely of fudge 
complete with Oompa Loompas climbing along the side of it. After running through some of his favorite spots, he allows Mike TV to push one of the buttons, and to no one's surprise, he chooses to visit the television room. The 1971 adaptation doesn't reveal the glass elevator just yet. Instead, they use the Wonka-mobile, which is fueled with carbonated drinks and shoots foam all over everyone riding it. When the group is sufficiently cleaned off thanks to the Wonka wash, they enter the television room, and for now, the story proceeds as it happens in the book and in Burton's film. Sitting in the television room may be Wonka's greatest invention yet. It's called WonkaVision and allows matter to be transported in the form of waves and particles and rebuilt inside a television set where the viewer can reach in and grab hold of it. The only catch to the Wonka vision is that TV sets make everything smaller, or at least they used to back in those days. And because of that, any object that needs to be sent through has to be supersized before it's shrunken down. Well, Mike TV wants to be the first person ever sent by television, so he helps himself to the machine. He jumps on the platform, presses some buttons, and in an instant, he's transformed into waves and particles that are sent to a nearby TV screen. When he comes out the other side, he is extremely small. The book says that he's less than two inches tall, but in the movie, he's probably about six inches, but size doesn't matter. Either way, his parents are flummoxed over how to fix this, and to be honest, so is Wonka, so he suggests putting him in the machine for stretching chewing gum because boys are always stretchy and elastic. Now in the book and in Burton's movie, Mike TV and his parents are escorted away and Willy Wonka realizes that Charlie is the one kid remaining so he delightedly shares the good news. He's won. Obviously, this is in stark contrast to the Wilder film. You lose! But as I mentioned before, there is no honesty test in the book or in Burton's movie. Charlie and his grandpa take a backseat to the terrible children and the fantastic factory around them to the point where Wonka feels like the main character and not Charlie. The Burton film tries to remedy this by having Charlie interject with questions about Wonka's childhood throughout the tour but those are followed by a series of flashbacks that explain how Wonka's trauma led to him becoming a candy-obsessed maniac, so the focus is still on Wonka. Despite all this, you still end up rooting for Charlie throughout the movie, and hearing that he's won the contest puts a big smile on your face. Now, in the 1971 adaptation, Wonka puts Charlie to the test by screwing him out of the lifetime supply of chocolate that he was supposedly entitled to by finding the golden ticket. You lose! Good day, sir! And this makes Grandpa Joe so angry that he tells Charlie they're going to give Slugworth one of the everlasting gobstoppers he asked for. I'll get even with him if it's the last thing I ever do. Slugworth wants a gobstopper, he'll get one. But unlike Grandpa Joe, who spent 20 years pretending to be crippled when all he needed to do was stretch, Charlie has a sense of pride and dignity. And so he returns the gobstopper to Wonka, only to find out it was all a test. Charlie. You won! Slugworth wasn't Slugworth at all. He was an employee of Wonka's who was ordered to offer each child a bribe in exchange for a gobstopper to see if they were honest or selfish, sneaky little rats. After sharing the good news, Wilder's Wonka takes Charlie and Grandpa Joe into the glass elevator and allows Charlie to press the one button that's never been pressed before. Funnily enough, when this happens in the book and Burton movie, Wonka eagerly presses the button himself and says he's been waiting a long time to do that. The elevator
elevator then shoots out of the roof of the factory. And in the Wilder film, this is when Charlie learns that he's to inherit Wonka's life's work and become the next chocolatier. But the book and Burton movie go on a bit longer. Firstly, they both show us that the other children on the tour survived all of their mishaps and hopefully they'll have learned a thing or two from the experience. Then they go crashing through the roof of Charlie's house, scaring the fudge out of his entire family and nearly crushing them in the process. But once again, it's at this point where their paths diverge. Because by the time the crash happens in the book, Charlie already knows that he's won the Candy King's throne and is super excited to share the news with his family who are more terrified about the madman who crashed through their roof than they are excited about Charlie's new 80-year life plan. So Charlie, Wonka, and Grandpa Joe actually have to push the grandparents' bed into the glass elevator and carry it to the factory. And this is how the book ends. But in Burton's movie, Wonka waits to tell Charlie what he's won until after he's already crashed through the roof. I'm gonna give this little boy my entire factory. You must be joking. Charlie gets excited for a hot minute, but then Wonka adds that Charlie isn't allowed to bring his family to the factory. So Charlie rejects his offer. The movie isn't over yet though. Some time goes by and Wonka pays Charlie a visit at his shoe shining stand to ask for some life advice. And together, the two pay his old daddy dentist a visit and start to patch up the relationship that was damaged all those years ago when his father banned him from eating candy and then abandoned him when he rebelled. Wonka's conquering of his inner demons gets him over the mental hang-up that left him opposed to Charlie's family joining them at the factory, and in the end, he moves their ruddy house into the chocolate room, and they live happily ever after. Not gonna lie, it's a pretty cute ending, especially when you consider that Burton modeled the bucket house after Roald Dahl's famous writing shed. I really love the visual of this little shed where he thought up all of these beautiful stories surrounded by one of the worlds he created. Speaking of the worlds he created, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was almost a very different one. When I tell you what the early drafts of this story were like, you are not going to believe what we almost got instead of this masterpiece. Part 2. Charlie's Chocolate Boy So all of the information I'm about to share comes directly from Roald Dahl's wife, Felicity Dahl, in an interview that she did with the BBC in 2017. And you're going to want to hear every detail. First off, she said that Charlie was originally written as a little black boy until Dahl's friend and literary agent Sheila St. Lawrence advised he scrap that detail because it wouldn't appeal to readers. Interestingly, I don't think the published version mentions anyone's skin color except for the Oompa Loompas. The illustrations show that Charlie is white, but the descriptions of his physicality focus on him being skinny as a skeleton not a particular pigment. This version also doesn't seem to include the plotline about Wonka's factory being infiltrated by spies causing him to shut it down or Wonka needing an heir to his throne. Instead, the whole reason for the golden ticket contest is because he's being bombarded with requests from children to see his factory and can't resist them any longer. So he decides to let seven children on a tour, not five. The extra two kids would have been named Marvin Prune and Miranda Piker. I also read on IMDb that while Burton was developing his film, he got to read some of these early drafts himself, and one of the most shocking details was that one of the children's names was Herpes. And I cannot help but wonder if that was Veruca Salt's original name, considering that Veruca is a kind of wart you get on your foot. I always thought a Veruca was a type of wart you got on the bottom of your foot. <laughs> 
Take that with a grain of salt, though, because IMDb doesn't cite its sources in trivia, and I couldn't find the interview where Burton said this. Back to the story, at some point along the factory tour, this version of Charlie ends up in the Easter Room, where he finds a life-sized mold shaped like a chocolate boy, similar to a chocolate bunny and Wonka helps him get into the mold before getting distracted and walking away. As he walks away, the mold closes on poor Charlie and starts to fill with chocolate, encasing him in a sugary shell there is no way to escape from. And the worst part is, no one knows where he's disappeared to. Not even Wonka. After the tour is over, Charlie is still encased in chocolate and is taken to Wonka's house. The chocolate boy is apparently meant to be a gift for Wonka's son, who's going to crack it open the next day. Charlie is relieved that he only has to spend one night in his chocolate prison, but things take a sinister turn when the sun goes down. While he's waiting in the family room, Charlie witnesses burglars break into the Wonka's house and steal all sorts of precious goods, like jewelry and antiques. Seeing an opportunity, Charlie musters some strength and groans very loudly, which alerts the Wonkas that someone is in the house. So the burglars end up being caught and sent to prison, while Charlie is freed from his own prison. Now, in this version, Charlie isn't rewarded with the entire factory because Wonka already has a family and therefore an heir but he is still set up for success. Wonka gives him his very own candy store called Charlie's Chocolate Shop in the busy city center, and Charlie lives happily ever after, allowing his family and friends to treat themselves to sugary sweets. Don't get me wrong, it's a very sweet ending, pun absolutely intended, but comparing this story about being an eyewitness to a crime versus the one where we're shown all the ways kids can be rotten and selfish and how that leads to some harsh consequences as soon as their parents can't protect them is a much more universal message that I think more kids can benefit from hearing. Because in the real world, being a narc doesn't actually get you that far. Then again, I may just not get it because Felicity Dahl went on to give a very thoughtful analysis of this version where she says Charlie getting caught in the chocolate mold is a metaphor for racial stereotype. Because in the story, Dahl emphasizes that the mold fits Charlie perfectly, but once the chocolate inside the mold hardens, it's uncomfortable. And this is where the racial symbolism comes in. Here you've got a black boy who gets trapped inside a life-size chocolate mold and can't be seen or heard through his chocolate coating. And while Mrs. Dahl puts particular emphasis on the chocolate and dark-skinned Charlie, this metaphor can apply to anyone who finds themselves to be the minority in a group. Dahl himself is a great example. He was the son of Norwegian immigrants, but grew up in the UK attending British boarding schools. His being different than the majority of his classmates made him a target for school bullies and even the administration who wanted him to conform to British cultural standards. Who he was on the inside didn't matter to them. They saw his Norwegian mold and could not accept it so they reshaped it by force until it resembled the British mold they were more comfortable with. Dahl's life experience was a major contributing factor in how he wrote his protagonists. From Charlie to James to Matilda, he could relate to these vulnerable children whose little world seemed rigged against them and took miracles to escape from. Miracles that I'm sure he fantasized about while he was growing up in similar circumstances. Dahl's works are all incredibly different from each other, but that common thread can be found in most of them, 
and I think that's a major factor in why they're just as popular with kids today as they were when they were written 70 plus years ago. They convey how being honest, working hard, and finding creative solutions to problems can take your life in a whole new direction. Sure, his heroes get a little help from a giant peach, telekinetic abilities, and a golden ticket, but they all still require James, Matilda, and Charlie to have the courage to seize these opportunities and the creativity to make the most of them. These are lessons that every child on the planet could benefit from hearing, which is why it's so frustrating to find out how close they came to being tarnished by modern day censorship. Part three, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. For those who don't know, in early 2023, Dahl's publishing company Puffin Books began publishing revised editions of his works in the UK. And at the bottom of the copyright page, they added a discreet notice that said, This book was written many years ago, and so we regularly review the language to ensure that it can continue to be enjoyed by all today. What they meant with this statement is that they gave themselves permission to edit the complete compendium of Dahl's works however they wanted resulting in hundreds of changes. They partnered with an organization called Inclusive Minds, which has not one, but two donation links at the top of their website and allowed their sensitivity readers to alter, add, replace, or even delete any words or phrases that could be deemed insensitive. No, not slurs or anything serious like that. Dahl wrote these books for kids after all. Instead, they resorted to cutting out any descriptions relating to almost every character's age, weight, mental health, and gender, rendering Rold's wacky world of creative, colorful characters a dull shade of gray. Augustus Gloop is no longer fat, Mike TV doesn't carry around toy pistols, and Charlie is no longer as skinny as a skeleton. Out of everyone, I think the Oompa Loompas took the most damage from these revisions though, because when they're introduced, the only descriptor that we get is when they're called the little people. It's extremely vague and doesn't give the children reading the book any clue of how to visualize them, because apparently getting more specific would be offensive. Let's play a game. I'm gonna read a few other Oompa Loompa descriptors to you, and I want you to guess which ones had to be removed or changed so the story could continue to be enjoyed today. Aren't they fantastic? No higher than my knee. Look at their funny long hair. The Oompa Loompas spent every moment of their days climbing through the treetops. Poor little Oompa Loompas. The poor little fellow looking thin and starved was sitting there. The Oompa Loompa bowed and smiled, showing beautiful white teeth. His skin was rosy white, his hair was golden brown, and the top of his head came just above the height of Mr. Wonka's knee. He wore the usual deer skin slung over his shoulder. I'll give you a few moments to reflect on these. If you guessed all of them, you'd be correct. Every single one of these was removed and only one was replaced. Which one would that be? The poor little fellow looking thin and starved was sitting there. So what'd they replace it with? Drum roll please. The fellow was sitting there. And to be honest, I'm appalled they would use a gendered word like fellow. Seriously though, what were the sensitivity readers concerned about with these statements? Who would be offended by them? 
Did they really think that a child reading these would have their feelings hurt somehow? And why are these things anything to be offended by? Because I'm telling you right now, I was a short, skinny little kid. From kindergarten through sophomore year of high school, my head was the size of a bowling ball and my body was as thin as a toothpick. I basically was an Oompa Loompa, and I doubt I would have interpreted the descriptions of them starving to death as shaming my body type. And if one of these sensitivity readers told me, hey, we removed this from the book because we didn't want to hurt your feelings, I would ask them, why? Why would that hurt my feelings? Are you implying there's something wrong with being skinny? Because I can run really fast. Maybe it was bigotry they were worried about. The last thing you want is kids becoming prejudiced against... fantasy creatures. Now before you call me a hypocrite because I didn't have a problem with the original changes Dahl made to the Oompa Loompas, that's a very different situation. First off, those edits were made by Dahl himself at the tail end of the civil rights movement, so the end result was still his vision. There's also no denying that the original descriptions were racially charged and more based in reality with the Oompa Loompas being packed up and shipped out of Africa. Even though the story says this was voluntary, it resembles history a little too much, and when it was written, slavery had only been abolished in America for a century. That's less than two lifetimes. The point is, even children could make the connection between what Wonka did and the crimes committed against the African people, as long as they had been taught about it in school. So Dahl had to make it clear that Oompa Loompas were fantasy creatures that don't exist in reality. Compare that to the changes sensitivity readers made, where any description of the Oompa Loompas appearance or gender was removed and replaced with nothing. So kids reading the book can't visualize these one-of-a-kind characters. That's like if you went to the dentist for a routine checkup and he pulled out half your teeth. Sure, you might have gotten some cavities eventually, but there's no evidence you had any, and now you can't chew. But if you ask the dentist, he'll claim he's a hero, because he stopped the cavities before they could even start. You know what? You're right, doctor. Why did I even ask? I'm gonna go eat some yogurt and meat paste. The last thing I'll say about this is that Dahl himself insisted that no changes be made to his books after his death. He's on record saying in a conversation with his friend, the painter Francis Bacon, I've warned my publishers that if they later on so much as change a single comma in one of my books, that they will never see another word from me. I just hope to God that will never happen to any of my writings as I am lying comfortably in my Viking grave. Puffin Books and the Roald Dahl Story Company were willing to go against the wishes of a dead man in order to distance themselves from him, but were also happy to profit off of his life's work for decades and then sell the rights to Netflix for $686 million. They sent out the sensitivity readers to plant their flag in the moral high ground so everyone can see their virtue from far and wide and then misled the public about the severity of the changes. When discussing the revisions, a spokesman for the Roald Dahl Story Company said, Our guiding principle throughout has been to maintain the storylines, characters, and the irreverence and sharp-edged spirit of the original text. Any changes made have been small and carefully considered. That is one big pile of shit. Roald Dahl was not a perfect person, by his own admission, but there's no arguing that his work has been a net positive for children around the world. Not only because of the inspiring messages they contain, but the amount of fun that kids have while reading them can spawn a lifelong love of reading and therefore learning. And I think we can all agree, that's a good thing. But just to clarify my stance, because I saw some confused comments when I talked about this in the messed up origins of James and the Giant Peach, 
I am not telling you what to read your kids. If his original words don't sit well with you, then my advice would be to simply not read his books. But for some reason, the offended always forget they have the option not to partake. So if you want to buy a revised edition, that's your prerogative. Personally, I would rather my child read award-winning books from an esteemed but imperfect author than a version that was manipulated by a bunch of nameless, faceless sensitivity readers like the ones at Inclusive Minds. There is no guarantee that their personal views and values are any better than dolls, so I'm not going to defer to their judgment about what's best for my children. Fortunately, no matter what end of the sensitivity spectrum you're on, your needs can be met because after the UK publishers received a ton of backlash, Dolls publishers in the United States, France, Spain, and the Netherlands announced they would not be incorporating the changes, so you can still read the stories written as intended. At the end of the day, a good story is a good story, and there's a reason that Dolls have stood the test of time. But now I've gotta ask, what are your thoughts on this censorship scandal? If you do think the revisions like the ones I discussed today are a good thing, I would love to hear your thoughts on why, because in my opinion, this doesn't actually do anything to protect children in any meaningful way, and it sets a dangerous precedent for how publishers can treat classic literature. Also, what do you think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? I love the book, but I personally didn't grow up on doll stories and would love to hear from those who did and those who got something out of today's episode. Let me know your thoughts by hitting up Messed Up Origins on social media. Links to those are in the description. Then make sure to sacrifice those five-star and follow buttons to hear more deep dives into classic stories like Charlie's, fairy tales, myths, and nursery rhymes every Friday. Until then, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first.